Morning Glory and Evening Grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thanks to Guy Benson for covering the first couple hours for me. It is time now to uh, commence our weekly end-of-the-week radio hour with a member of the faculty from Hillsdale College, usually Dr. Larry Oren. This week, though, Dr. Paul Ray is back. He is, of course, uh, a, a frequent visitor to our program. He's been here before on some of the classics. He's been in Hillsdale for many years. He writes on Montesquieu. His most recent book is called Soft Despotism. Actually, I think your most recent book is Montesquieu and the Logic of Liberty, isn't it, uh, Professor Ray? That's true. That's true. They came out four months apart, though. Okay, well, I'm getting easily confused then. But, uh, Dr. Ray, why do you think they nominated you to do the Renaissance with me? Uh, Who knows? Uh, I've written a book on Machiavelli. Uh, There's a book called Against Throne and Altar, Machiavelli and Political Theory Under the English Republic, and it includes figures uh, like John Milton and Thomas Hobbes, who are also sort of at the very tail end of the Renaissance. I thought it was maybe because you got the short straw at the faculty meeting and somebody had to do this because we've just spent a grand total of 10 weeks on Aquinas and Dante. And so I said to him last week, we've got to pick up the pace. We have to move, you know, otherwise we're never going to get out of the 15th century. And so they said, okay, uh, we'll get Ray. And so that you're, you have been nominated. So let's begin by by really anchoring people in what we mean by renaissance. I'm hoping, for example, that the Cleveland Browns enjoy a renaissance. A lot of people believe that in America there, there is a renaissance underway in architecture. A lot of folks have spoken about renaissances in different places in different times. But we're talking about the renaissance. What's that mean to you? Well, it, it, you know, the word means rebirth, and it is used to refer to um, a, a kind of transformation in learning that takes place in the uh, 15th century, really, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. And it's tied with a recovery of the classics. Uh, I don't mean that the later Middle Ages didn't have Aristotle and so forth, but they're there's a huge influx of uh, new texts uh, that takes place in uh, the late 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th century. The rediscovery of Cicero's letters, uh, for example. The, the discovery of Lucretius's De Rerum Natura. Um, the full recovery of, of Plato. Uh, and partly uh, it, it has to do with people wandering around um, monasteries and turning up manuscripts that had not been noticed before. Uh, But partly it also has to do with the fall fall of Constantinople in 1453 to the Turks, Uh, and and a a flood of um, scholarly types uh, bringing Greek manuscripts from uh, what had been the Eastern Roman Empire. And that coincides with a social change. Uh, Prior to that time, the uh, ministers of kings had a tendency to be bishops because they were the main, the educated people. And so churchmen uh, were the intelligentsia. What you have growing up in this period of the Renaissance is a group of laymen who hold high offices in republics like Venice and Florence and in courts all over Europe. And this lay class is uh, educated in the classics. Uh, there's also a shift in focus. Uh, in the medieval period, uh, among the scholastics in particular, uh, there's a focus on metaphysics and on theology. 
uh, the humanists of the Renaissance period tend to be focused on rhetoric and ethics. So in a way, it begins with Cicero, uh, with the sort of rhetorical works of Cicero, and then with his ethical works like De Officiis. But then along comes Aristotle, uh, and the Nicomachean ethics becomes central, and then Aristotle's rhetoric When you say, central. Dr. Ray, that they become central, to whom are we referring they become central to? Because, again, the, the geography of that period is, is only remotely understood by the modern audience. People driving around right now are used to cars, trucks, automobiles, trains, planes. Uh, the idea of Florence, for those of us who have been lucky enough to be there, of a, of a you know, ex- volcano of activity, still would strike us as a rather small burg, etc. But it, it's, who is this happening with? Yes, a few bishops, but, but how do they get around and physically what is their life like? Well, they're educated people. Uh, they're lay people. Uh, they travel a fair amount. Uh, people like Thomas More and Desiderius Erasmus are all over. Um, Machiavelli is, is a diplomat, and so he goes to the French court. He goes to the court of the Holy Roman Emperor on behalf of Florence. So these people are employed at very high levels, they have to have excellent Latin because all um, public uh, tasks take place in Latin. Uh, and they, they, they form a class, just as the scholastics formed a class, and a very self-conscious class. And, and the, the heart of the matter, uh, the sort of central theme, is rhetoric and ethics and good government. Uh, and so, for example, you have a whole series of humanists as chancellors of the Florentine Republic. Caluccio Salutati, Leonardo Bruni, Carlo Massupini, Poggio Bracciolini, Benedetto Accolti, Bartolomeo Scala. And, you know, notice I'm emphasizing Italy because yep. it starts in Italy. Italy is really the, the, it's the wealthiest place in Europe. Um, it has the oldest civilization, the, the, the most cities. It's the most urbanized place. Uh, and it is in Italy that you get the first emergence of this. And then it's imitated everywhere else. Now, when, when, when it begins to emerge, are people conscious of something new happening? And, and again, for the benefit of our modern audience, I'll talk about music scenes. People were aware when it happened of the English invasion in the 60s. They were aware when it happened of the Seattle music scene. They were aware when it happened of urban rap and of East and West. Were they aware of an intellectual ferment going on in the, uh, in the late uh, 15th century? Yes. Uh, they didn't call it the Renaissance. That's our word. But they are aware of the new learning, and they are aware that their focus is is different. And so one of the things they do is they attack uh, the churchmen. Uh, they don't attack Christianity directly, but they they attack the sort of pomposity of, of metaphysics. They attack the scholastics, and they articulate uh, an understanding of the good life built around language. So philology lies at the center of it. Now, now unpack that. We got a lot of Steelers fans out there, Paul Ray. So you got to unpack philology very carefully for them. Well, it's it's the study of language. And they think it's a Christmas carol, so be careful. Yeah, right. And 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 uh, rhetoric 
and logic are part of it. Okay. Um, you know, one of the things actually we're doing at Hillsdale is we have a, we have a new required course as part of our core on rhetoric and logic. So there's a certain sense in which we are going back to the Renaissance and trying to recover the spirit of what, what they were doing. Uh, another thing that happens in the Renaissance is people start writing in the vernacular. In, in the Middle Ages, there are you know popular ditties written in the vernacular. There's a little bit of literature written in the vernacular. But in, 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 the, in the course of the Renaissance, you begin to have people like Machiavelli writing Italian, in Italian and Montaigne writing in French and Shakespeare uh, and Milton uh, writing in English. And so so you, you just put a larger people... public is what I'm getting at. And, you... of course, one of the things that happens in the 15th century is the introduction of printing. You just went from um, uh, the, the, the 15th century to the 16th century. Montaigne is, is late 16th century, and we began in, in the 1450s. So this, re- this Renaissance period is really sort of a mess when you try and organize it chronologically, isn't it? Well, it starts in Italy in the earlier period, and then it spreads north. You know, so that, that the, the era of um, uh, Thomas More and Erasmus is is later than um, than the earliest uh, era in Italy, than Poggio Bracciolini and so forth. Da, da, uh, and then it'll eventually get to England, and you'll have Sir Philip Sidney, you'll have Spencer, you'll have William Shakespeare, you'll have Ben Jonson. And I believe the last figure in the, in the English Renaissance is Thomas Hobbes. Now, that, that might seem odd, but his first book was a translation into English of Thucydides, and his last book was a translation into English of Homer. Well, that's interesting because as we go to our break then, people can think of this as beginning with Dante and ending with Hobbes. Yeah. All right, when we come back, Dr. Paul Ray of Hillsdale College, for every one of these Hillsdale dialogues, both the history sections and lectures such as this one, conversations about how we got from point A to point B, they're all available at hughforhillsdale.com. And you can get all of Hillsdale's free and many offerings at hillsdale.edu. Also sign up there. For Imprimus, the free speech digest at that university. Stay tuned. 21 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thanks so much for listening today. It's the last hour of radio on my radio week. That means it's the hour of Hillsdale, the Hillsdale Dialogue, which I present each week with either Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, or one of his many wonderful colleagues this week, Dr. Paul Ray, a distinguished political theorist and teacher at Hillsdale. He's been my guest in the past on matters both current and long, long ago. Today's giving us an overview of the Renaissance period before we plunge into any particulars. But I have to ask right now, I was with your uh, commencement speaker yesterday, Dr. Ray. Eric McTaxis will be giving the commencement at Hillsdale. And uh, people often refer, rightfully so, to Eric as a Renaissance man. And what do you mean by that? When you hear it, what do you think that ought to mean? Well, it means rounded. It means all learning is at his command. It doesn't mean that he's an expert in nuclear physics, but he knows a fair amount about it. Uh, and he knows how to find an expert, and he knows who's good on it and, and, and who's not. It doesn't mean that he knows everything about ballet. But he knows something about it. He's been to the ballet a few times, and he knows some of the better ballets. In other words, somebody who's extraordinarily broad and who's got great reach 
Do you think someone can lead a good life if they are not a Renaissance individual? Yes. Is it easier to lead a good life if someone is a Renaissance individual? I think so. Why? Well, look, um, the good life is tied up with two things, work and leisure. Um, And uh, if you're well-educated, you've got a better shot at getting work that has uh, satisfaction in it, that is genuinely a pleasure. But leave that aside. A lot of work is drudgery. I, I remember my doctor Fatih saying to me uh, that being a professor half of the time is, is no more interesting than being a truck driver. As I look at a stack of blue books, I wish to concur in his judgment. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, yes, precisely. <laughs> uh, 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 but <clears throat> here's what the, re- the advantage the Renaissance man has, a refined use of leisure. That is to say... Um, the breadth enables you to enjoy ballet. It, it, it enables you to enjoy opera. It enables you to enjoy novels of different kinds. It enables you um, to enjoy reading something like The Economist, uh, which you know gives you a picture of a, of a large world. Uh, it, 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 it gives you the, the capacity to read Friedrich Hayek. Uh, and understand him. So what you can do if you get a proper education in college is it lays a foundation for reading all these other things through the rest of your life. So I'm talking with Dr. Paul Ray of Hillsdale College about the Renaissance. And the Renaissance begins in the uh, late 15th century and and extends for many hundreds of years. But I want to ask the the question that I think a lot of people will intuit. In 1517, Luther starts the Reformation which runs somewhat concurrently with the Renaissance. Did the Renaissance give rise to the Reformation? Well, in one sense, yes. Um, One of the things that that happens in the Renaissance, and Erasmus is a major figure in this regard, is um, a turn from the Latin Bible to the Greek Bible, uh, and beyond that to the Aramaic. And so the, the, the Reformation is grounded in certain arguments about how certain documents in the Bible should be read. Uh, And the learning that lies behind those claims on, say, Luther's part, uh, is provided by Erasmus. So he's extraordinarily important in this regard. Erasmus, by the way, remains a Catholic to the very end. Luther tries to lure him into Protestantism, but he doesn't go there. But Without Erasmus, it's hard to imagine that Luther or Calvin would have been possible. But even if Erasmus had not underdone, undertaken what he did, uh, a Luther or a Calvin was inevitable given the explosion of learning, wasn't it? I probably. That is to say, somebody would have done the work that Erasmus did, uh, uh, sort of critical editions uh, in the Greek uh, of biblical texts. Uh, and the, the explosion of learning and the expansion of learning beyond the clergy. Remember, Calvin's not a clergyman. Right. Uh, that just opens things up. Uh, there, there's, there are many more people who are literate as, as a consequence of, of what's been happening. And, you know, let's not uh, de-emphasize printing. Printing is like the Internet. 
Uh, printing is like radio. It suddenly makes communication much cheaper than it ever been before. Uh, the, 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 the book that has to be copied laboriously is a very expensive item. From our perspective, the printed book is an expensive item because we can go to the Internet and get these things free. Right. But the printed book is much, much cheaper than the copied book. So access becomes crucial. And, you know, for the Reformation, it's access to the Bible. And in particular, access to the Bible in vernacular translations. Which is why when Luther translates it into German, it's a radical act, as radical as nailing the thesis to the wall. Absolutely. And look, if you think of the English Reformation, the King James Bible, uh, it comes not right at the beginning, but it's, it's the thing that had the greatest staying power. It's still got staying power. Now, at the same time that the, and I'm glad you mentioned Shakespeare um, uh, earlier, he's also one of the people who worked on the King James Bible translation. At the same time that there are all these people who are getting smart and smarter and writing great books, art explodes. So yeah. why? Um, well, once again, the inspiration is classical. Uh, the, the, one of the things that goes on in the Renaissance is the rediscovery of, of things like classical sculpture. Uh, there's a kind of archaeology taking place. Uh, and it's the inspiration of, of that, that that leads to someone like Michelangelo. Uh, you know, the, the, this world is very small. One of the things that, that is, is wonderful from the period are the letters of Machiavelli. And one of the things that's a hoot in these letters is he, he's writing to a friend in Rome, and he's sending the letter with a fellow he knows who's going down to Rome named Michelangelo. Huh. Yeah, that is. So these people all know one another. And, and they're also traveling between the various capitals. As was established in the last few weeks, Aquinas would go off sent hither or yon by the Pope to arbitrate some dispute, and Dante gets tossed out of Florence and runs over to Ravenna and hangs out there, and everyone's moving around. But there is civil strife. This is not a period of uh, the lamb laying down with the lion. No, there never has been such a period, and there's never going to be. Well, that's, uh, that's kind of a... This is a period of great wars, because... <laughs> Look, the I got to say, Europe that was a pretty dark that was a pretty dark comment, Dr. Ray. I mean, that was, you know, there's never going to be? Never going to be. Uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm on leave this year at the Hoover Institution in California, where you are, uh, writing a book on, um, well, I'm, I'm, I've written a book on the Persian Wars, and I'm writing a book on the Peloponnesian War, working my way up to it. So I've been thinking about war a lot, and no, it's not going to go away. All right, when we come back from break, we'll find out why the Renaissance didn't fix everything. Paul Ray, the gloomiest of fellows. No, actually, he's very, very happy. I've been in his classroom at Hillsdale. Rejoins me in just a moment. Stay tuned to the Hillsdale Dialogue on the Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt's the weekly Hillsdale Dialogue. At the 15th hour, 15 hours of radio each week, I pause with one of my friends from Hillsdale College up in Michigan. And you can see everything you need to know about the college at hillsdale.edu. To talk about a great work or period in the Western canon to try and put down just the first marker for what is hopefully your lifelong uh, love of learning in all of these classics. We've been doing this for a year and a half. Every single Hillsdale Dialogue 
in its original recorded form is available at hugh4hillsdale.com, as well as uh, transcribed by uh, Dwayne on the Internet. Uh, We've got them at the transcript page. And Hillsdale offers many, many free courses at hillsdale.edu and a free speech digest which you can have by simply going to hillsdale.edu, H-I-L-L-S-D-A-L-E.edu, and signing up, and they will send it to you for free from now until the end of days. My guest this week is Dr. Paul Ray, who is a a member of the faculty, a distinguished member of the faculty, a Yaley, though. Uh, He did get his Ph.D. from Yale, and he did uh, work at Oxford as well, written extraordinarily important books, and is spending the year at the Hoover Institution up in, uh, in Palo Alto, working away on the Peloponnesian Wars, which is interesting since we began very early in the Peloponnesian Wars. So, Dr. Ray, help me out here. I have to do the outline for these. I have to figure out how and whom to study if we're going to communicate the Renaissance. So let's do some cheat sheet here. Where would you go and who would you make sure we cover in the next few months so that someone gets a sense of who mattered and in what order that they mattered and why they mattered? Hmm. Well, I'd start with Petrarch. largely because he's at the beginning of the game, and he, uh, there you can find, uh, stated in the clearest possible way, the critique of scholasticism. But there you can also find the, the, the interest in Cicero and, and in his letters. Uh, I'd, I'd look at Leonardo Bruni, uh, who's a chancellor of the Florentine Republic and is... Uh, uh, one of the figures that are called civic humanists. This is a period when people begin to think about the recovery of republicanism. Um, in the Middle Ages, the orientation was to uh, reestablish the Roman Empire. Um, universal monarchy was the theme. Uh, now you begin to have people who begin to think maybe republicanism is a better form of government than monarchy. And, and one of those who toys with this idea is Leonardo Bruni. Okay. Uh, another figure you can't do without is a man who uh, drafted his greatest work 500 years ago, precisely 500 years ago. His name was Niccolo Machiavelli. Well, of course. Now, how would you, on in this format, would you go with the prince or would you go with the republic? Would you go with the letters? What would you do knowing that at most we spend three or four weeks on any individual? I, 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 would, uh, I would go with the prince, and I'd look at it very carefully. Uh, it has the great virtue of being short, pithy, um, shocking, uh, and, uh, and fascinating. Uh, his other work, uh, The Discourses on Livy, it's a very important book, but to do it right, you need to be reading Livy at the same time. It's the sort of thing for an upper-level seminar for a senior uh, or for uh, graduate students. Um, but the but the prince is accessible to anyone. You can simply pick it up. It's also understood, or at least it was understood by my teachers, to represent what he called the break, uh, the big change. What do you think I, he I meant? Think that's by, right. And so, what is that break that people should be ready for? Well, if you look in chapter fifteen of the prince, where I think the heart of the thing lies, there's an a direct attack on on morality. Uh, and the attack takes the form of suggesting that all of the qualities that, that we consider good and all of the qualities we consider evil are, in fact, um, characteristics, postures, that uh, if you're looking out for yourself, you might adopt one or the other at any given time. 
That is to say, there's a kind of flexibility being preached. And the standard for conduct should be uh, security and well-being, the last two words of Chapter 15 of the Prince. Uh, and this is uh, a bomb thrown at Aristotle. So what you've got with Machiavelli is someone inside the Renaissance blowing up the Renaissance. Uh and after him, people have to cope with this critique of morality. How fast does it travel? Uh, very fast. By the end of the uh, 16th century, it's written in the early part of the 16th century, it's being praised to the skies by Sir Francis Bacon in England. Uh, you know, it doesn't get published till 1532, but it gets published in another way, by, via copyists, starting about 1516. Uh, and it spreads. And um, we come back one more segment with Dr. Paul Ray on our introduction to the Renaissance. Uh, so we've got down Petrarch and Bruni and Machiavelli. Whom else will he send us towards so you can begin to plan your summer reading now uh, before Dr. Arn gets back and messes up my outline? Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt. This is, of course, the hour of Hillsdale, the Hillsdale Dialogue, the last radio hour of the week. My guest this week has been Dr. Paul Ray as we've begun our introduction to the Renaissance. Uh, over the last 10 weeks, we were in Aquinas and Dante, and now we have been galloping around and back and forth without much of a timeline. But organizing you for what will be hopefully uh, an adventure in some sinkers that you may not have heard of before, Bruni. Uh, some I'm sure you have, Machiavelli. And after that, uh, uh, Professor Ray, will you, where would you suggest we go when we're done when we lay down the prints? Well, I'd go to Claudio Monteverdi. I'd go to music. Um, uh, everyone's heard of Galileo, but uh, very few people know that his father was one of the creators of opera. And opera was envisaged by Vincenzo uh, Galilei uh, as a restoration of ancient Greek tragedy, which they knew was sung. Oh, uh, and the person who realized I didn't know that most fully was Claudio Monteverdi, one of the great uh, opera composers. So you might you might want to look at music and at the at the attempt to recover classical tragedy and the 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 production as a consequence of that uh, of the first operas. So we had spoken about how learning and writing and art had flourished, but we had neglected music. And of course, the Renaissance is the great rebirth of musical tradition as well. Yes, and it just, it's a wonderful period in music. Polyphony, uh, you know, with, with, with uh, uh, different voices sort of weaving in and out of one another. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it, I, it's, it's my favorite period musically. Are you going to suggest, though, Erasmus? Are you going to, t are you going to send us yes, to Thomas Moore? They should read the, the most accessible work is In Praise of Folly, which he wrote one year when he was staying in the house of Thomas More. And he wrote it in Latin, and uh, the word for folly in Latin is Moore's name. So, so this was he, it, it's a pun on the name of his host. Now, believe it or not, there's a little sort of anti-Moore bubble going on in Wolf's Hall and these popular novels, which attempt to rewrite the role of Moore in the common consciousness from uh, the, the the great English patriot, scholar, and bishop to being something of a of a prig. Um, right, and, and it's uh, the, the Wolf Hall is in praise of Thomas Cromwell. Right. Uh, who is the man who first brought a Machiavelli manuscript to England. Uh, 
and uh, oh, perfect. in some sense it was the inspiration for um, the English Reformation as he understood it. Uh, so all these things are connected with one another. Oh, they are. So, um, and, and then I would read Thomas More's Utopia. Oh, I was afraid you were going to try to stop you before you told us to do that, because Mark Levin, uh, my radio pal, did that for his Liberty Amendments. And I told him when I was interviewing that, frankly, he could never get me to read Utopia, ever. Oh, it's great fun. Oh, Paul Ray, God, I love you. But no, it's not. It's like nails through, through your <laughs> nose. It's terrible. <laughs> And then I'd read the essays of Michel de Montaigne. Well, that I spent a full year as an undergraduate doing. And yes, we'll do number 26 on friendship, which is one of my favorite bits of writing ever, ever. Yes, so. yes. It, 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 uh, uh, and, you, you know, you might read Starry Night by um, Galileo. Okay. I'm, I'm you know, writing notes copiously, science? which is what uh, a good student does. Starry Night by Galileo. Why? Well, it's, 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 it's. It's one of the books that simply transforms things. And, and, you know, one of the arguments he's making is the liberation of philosophy from theology. Uh, so it's, it's trying to break things wide open. You know, it's interesting to me, uh, Montaigne, of course, a Frenchman, but this is primarily not a French undertaking, correct? No, it's, it's, it's a universal undertaking, and it gets translated right away. It's written in French. Though it's a very Latinate French, because his his mastery of Latin. Is oh, I'm just talking about the Renaissance generally, except for Montaigne. You've named to me all non-Frenchmen. I mean, are right. they are they the well, second? Well, you could read John Calvin. Well, of course, and people will and think he was a humanist. What? John Calvin was a humanist. Oh yes, he was. He was trained the way these other people were trained. How interesting. I wonder institutes, obviously, and so I may have yes. to put him in there somewhere as well. And did the rest of them read Calvin and say, Shudder, that's not what we're about? Uh, that's a good question. I think Shakespeare read Calvin and Shuddered. And then we will be ending, obviously, with Shakespeare. But that could be, we could be lost in Shakespeare for a very long time. Right, but don't forget Ben Johnson. Because everybody else does, right? That's yes, a- <laughs> and, and look, a, a, a play like Volpone. It's just wonderful. Uh, or his Sejanus, you know, a, a play that he's essentially adopted uh, a, a story out of Tacitus for. I, I think Johnson is, is, is absolutely wonderful. Then we'll be back to Shakespeare, and then we will wrap up with the man you told us to wrap up with. But, but I'm very curious about all of this. When, it, when it's over, does anyone or anything mark the end of the Renaissance? Well, yes. I think it's um, Machiavelli's success in blowing it up. So if you wanted to look at a book that is written by a Renaissance figure, but it's definitely a post-Renaissance book, I would read Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes. Okay, so written by a Renaissance man and the tombstone of the Renaissance. Yeah, and it lays the foundation for the Enlightenment. And would you, uh, in the minute left to us, explain to you what, what you mean by that? Well, it's an attempt to apply science, understood in the modern sense, inspired by Bacon. Um, uh, not inspired by Descartes, but Hobbes is pursuing the same kind of thinking as Descartes, which is to say mathematics is the foundation of science. 
uh, and to recast politics and everything else in light of science. It makes science understood in the modern sense the standard uh, for all knowledge. Again, inevitable that it happened or simply because Hobbes came along? Gosh. Well, he's not alone. You know, you could push this back to Bacon, and it's there, although I think um, Hobbes rhetorically is more powerful than Bacon with with his Leviathan. Uh, I would say that something of the sort was going to happen. Now, the way it happens is determined by the way Hobbes frames it. Uh, and he invents the state of nature. So the, the, the kinds of arguments about natural rights and the relationship between natural right and man's condition in the state of nature, that comes right out of Hobbes. Paul Ray, Professor at Hillsdale, thank you for a wonderful introduction to the Renaissance. We'll be back next week, America, to take it up in earnest. Go nowhere. I'll be back to conclude next this week's Hugh Hewitt Show.